Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Style Files podcast. I'm your host, Paloma Contreras. Joining me today is a friend of mine, the San Francisco-based interior designer, Palmer Weiss. Raised in Charleston, South Carolina, Palmer credits her Southern roots as a major influence on her design aesthetic. She admires the way Southerners embrace their family heritage, formality, and tradition in their homes, but are also not afraid to express a few of their eccentricities as well. Over 25 years of living in Northern California has allowed her to develop a unique style that both respects tradition and embraces new ideas. A mother of two girls and one yellow lab, Palmer also understands the need for a home to be as functional as it is beautiful. Never one to give into trends, Palmer is known for creating timeless, modern, and livable interiors with her signature bursts of color and a little bit of that Southern eccentricity thrown in for fun. Interiors and architecture are in Palmer's blood. With an accomplished interior designer for a mother and a father in real estate development, Palmer spent much of her childhood touring construction and job sites. Though she was always toiling away in her mom's sample closets and dissecting design trade magazines for inspiration, she didn't formalize her design career until 2002. Instead, she held jobs in investment banking and retail merchandising. She believes her experience in the business world has helped her immensely in managing client budgets and meeting project deadlines. She feels those attributes are as important to a successful client relationship as making inspired, creative choices. We'll hear a lot more about this on today's episode. Palmer also attended Brown University and earned her BA in History of Art and received her MBA at the J.L. Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern University. Palmer, thank you so much for joining us today. We're super excited to have you. Hi, Palmer. How are you? Hi, Paloma. I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. So are you home in San Francisco? I am. I am. We have, uh, we've got two kids doing remote school from home and my husband, who's a doctor, sort of in and out of the office and hospital and one slightly neurotic dog. So it's quite cozy. <laughs> I'm sure there's not a dull moment with so much going on at home. I can only imagine adding kids to the mix. Yes. Well, um, I'm getting to see a lot of them, which is definitely one of the silver linings. Um, I've been, you know, traveling a lot in the last couple of years. And so I'm enjoying my newfound role of stay at home mom. I'm not sure if they're over that yet or not, but mm-hmm. <laughs> how, well how old are your girls? I have a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's great age. I mean, they're all great ages, but I um, am very thankful because they're old enough that they're quite self-sufficient and I actually can, you know, work and do whatever I need to do, whether it's yoga, but at the same time, they still, you know, are happy to be around and a lot of fun um, and entertaining. That's great. Do they take an interest in design? Do they... Are they curious about what you do? Um, I think they're, you know, they're curious. Um, I don't know that they're necessarily interested in design. Mm-hmm. Although my younger one um, is interested in computers, as they all are, and um, has recently gotten into Sims, which is more of sort of a virtual world playground. But you, there's design elements to it. So she actually loves to play this game where I come in and I'm a really harsh critic on her um, design choices and, um, and, you know, 
tell her what she needs to do to fluff the house. And she's actually recreated our entire San Francisco house in The Sims. So I thought that was pretty impressive. Maybe promising for a career. I know. That's amazing. It was amazing. Well, so you grew up with a mother who was an interior designer. (laughs) So did you know when you were growing up that this was something you, you would eventually pursue as a career? Not at all. I really, um, I was not one of those kids who was rearranging their furniture or, you know, clipping mood boards or anything like that. Um, I, yes, it took me quite a while to discover that that's what I wanted to do. I think more than anything, I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and run my own business. I was pretty strong-willed child and it has carried on through to adulthood. Um, and I always had little ventures going. I mean, it sounds silly, but, you know, I ran a, an extremely lucrative um, lemonade stand on just positioned exactly right on the golf course, you know, for the South Carolina heat. And, you know, I ran daycares and things like that. So I always loved, you know, having my own little enterprise. That's amazing. So you had an entrepreneurial streak from a young age. I did. I think I did. I mean, I think part of it is that I just I truly love you know, business and I like the, I like troubleshooting things and I like the challenge of it. And I think, you know, the more cynical side is that I'm pretty opinionated and, and strong willed. And I think I always, you know, I, I knew that at least about myself and knew that, you know, a career sort of working for the man, if you will, was not really going to be <laughs> in my cards <laughs> or not for long at least. Right. Well, tell us a little bit about your path and how you ended up being a um, such a celebrated interior designer in San Francisco. You grew up in Charleston and mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how those two dots connected. Sure. Wow. That could take up the rest of the podcast because <laughs> there are about 5,000 dots in the middle of all of those dots. So just stop me if I go on too long. Um, you know, I, I, I did grow up in Charleston and, you know, I think that more than anything that really sort of imprinted in my DNA of love and reverence for design and architecture and history and, um, and beauty, um, and even decrepit and crumbling beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it was really sort of omnipresent there. Um, you know, all of my friends, none of my friends, parents were designers or anything. And no matter what sort of living conditions, people all sort of celebrated home and celebrated having antiques and heirlooms in their home and, and things like that. So I think that that, you know, really, has traveled with me, but the road to get there was very, very long. I, I did not think I wanted to be a designer. I think, um, you know, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I think I thought, you know, designers was, I thought it was sort of a fluff job, you know, sort of a Mm -hmm. lightweight, um, part-timey kind of job. And I was a pretty driven kid. And, um, so I didn't, I didn't think that that was kind of hardcore enough. And, that's could not be further from the truth (laughs) Uh, for anybody out there contemplating interior design. But, um, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always describe myself as I was sort of a left brain, right brain schizophrenic um, all my life. You know, I liked science. I liked math. um, I liked business, but then I had this other side of me that, loved, you know, loved art, loved architecture. Um, I actually was a photographer for a while. Uh, It's been a lifelong quest to until I was 31, I think, when I started my design career to uh, 
to merge those two. Um, and I, you know, in finding this career, so I can walk you through some of that, but I, I, you know, if you would, if you'd like, just tell me where to start. Well, so you studied at Northwestern and your degree was in finance. Is that right? Uh, yes and no. So I went to, um, I went to Brown for undergrad and I was a history of art and architecture major. And actually, one of the reasons I went to Brown was because of the proximity to RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. Mm-hmm. When I was at boarding school, I'd had a photography teacher who had really changed my life and um, sort of opened my eyes to um, that craft of photography. And, you know, this was a time when photography had a lot of time in a dark room and, you know, was a very much of a, a tactical, uh, a tactile, sorry, tactile job as well. Um, so anyway, I thought that I actually might want to go full time to design school, but sort of, you know, cooler heads in my family prevailed in terms of getting a liberal arts education as opposed to just a visual arts education. And so the appeal of Brown was that you could take classes at RISD. Um, and so that's kind of how I landed there. I ended up, long story short, not really pursuing photography. And I got a degree in the history of art and architecture, not because I thought I wanted to do that as a career necessarily. But, you know, my brother was a philosophy major. My, my family sort of subscribed to the theory of, you know, train your brain to think and then you can do anything. So it doesn't really matter what you study undergrad. Um, and then, you know, after college, I sort of bounced around. I moved out to San Francisco on a whim. Literally, my mom thought I was, you know, kidding. And I said, no, I've already shipped my car. I'm, I'm going. And oh, wow. Yeah, I had some friends out here, you know, who graduated before me. Um, And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I ended up landing a job at Goldman Sachs, and um, which was an amazing experience for a variety of reasons. Um, You know, when you work in finance on the West Coast, you get up at 345, you're at your desk at 430, and you work, you know, a 12-hour day or 11-hour day, whatever. But... um, as great as that experience was, and it taught me a lot about a work ethic and, um, and, you know, um, I don't know, just amazing people that were working there, but it taught me that I really wasn't motivated by money or the, you know, what you should be doing. I mean, I had this, it was a very prestigious job for somebody at 23 to have. And I just, you know, I, it, I felt like it was crushing my soul. And again, nothing against Goldman. It was actually a lovely place. And I loved all the people I worked with. But I just, that was when I just kind of knew I have to find whatever it is I'm put on this earth to do. And that doesn't mean I have to be Mother Teresa and solve all the world's problems. I just have to do whatever it is that I'm supposed to do. That thing that makes you jump out of bed in the morning and that you just can't not do. Um, and so, Anyway, long story longer, um, I didn't really know what that was. And so I ended up applying to Kellogg, which is Northwestern's business school. Basically, I mean, frankly, to have a safe place to kind of park it until I figured it out. And I knew that I wanted to be a mom. I always knew that. And I thought, like, God, how am I going to, you know, get in and out of the workforce um, if I end up being a stay-at-home mom, you know, more nimbly? Um without having, you know, some sort of credential. So that was a lot of the reason that I went to business school. So at that point, had you already met your husband? No, 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 I didn't. No, I did not meet my husband. And um, that's so smart that you thought about that not being in a serious relationship necessarily, but having 
the um, just the wherewithal to think that clearly about your future and what you truly wanted to get out of it and how you might set yourself up in order to do that in the best way possible. Yeah. Well, it's an expensive way to set yourself up for motherhood well, sure. to go to business school. <laughs> so I'll never forget. I was on this show. I don't know. It was some sort of children's show when I was little, I must've been like five or something. And my brother made so much fun of me afterwards for this, but they went around and they asked, you know, the kids like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I just said, you know, I want to be a mommy. And, um, and it is really true. I mean, I was very unclear what I wanted to do with my life professionally. I knew I wanted to do something, but that was a non-negotiable. I always have wanted to be a mom. And so I really spent a lot of time thinking about how I was going to have a career um, that allowed me to be the kind of mom that I wanted to be also. That's amazing. That I mean, that's so sweet, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also so nice, I think, to have the self-assuredness from an early age of what those tangible things were in life, those um, non-negotiables that you would want to achieve later on. I think it's really important to know that because not everybody does. And I mean, I can speak from personal experience. I'm 38 years old and I don't have children. And for a very long time, I thought that I would. And Mm -hmm. just later in life, it's been kind of a big question mark. So to know, to know that I think is really powerful. Right. No, I think it is. And I think it cuts both ways. I mean, I think it's very honorable for people to make the very conscious decision not to have children. Also, I think societal pressures and the expectation is, you know, the second you get married, people start asking you when you're going to have kids. And it's not for everyone. And it shouldn't be for everyone. And, um, you know, there are a lot of amazing things about being a parent. And there are a lot of sacrifices and not necessarily all noble sacrifices either. So it's an important decision either way. Absolutely. So then what was your experience at Kellogg like? Well, how do you think that's prepared you for running your design firm? So um, Kellogg, I mean, luckily, thank God I went to Kellogg and not some other business schools because the whole focus at Kellogg, even though it's a very intense and, you know, great business school, the whole focus is on collaboration and teamwork and it's got a, you know, big marketing bent. So really everything is done in groups. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that nothing prepares you better for design and life in general than to be able to work with people. I would like to think I would have been able to work with people otherwise, but, um, you know, collaborating and what would be amazing is you'd throw these people in a group and, you know, one would have been a neurosurgeon in his past life. And one would have been in the army Corps of engineers and one was a professional baseball player. And, you know, then there'd be me an art person and, It was really, it taught you um, how to work well with everyone, but also how to kind of use everybody's strengths. You know, no matter what somebody's background was, there was something unique that they brought to the table that if channeled correctly, could be, you know, really useful for the greater good. And I think that that's a great analogy for how design works. I mean, designers, individual interior designers, I'll speak for myself. I don't really do anything (laughs) that extraordinary. What I do is I know who I need to talk to to get stuff done and how to do that and how to sort of get the best of everyone, um, including myself, but including my team, including my vendors, including, you know, contractors. And so I think that that's a very good 
skill. And then, you know, the other thing is um, in business school, I loved operations. Like I, I would have a widget factory if I could, you know, I love the, I'm also just an incredibly impatient person. So I love anything that makes things, you know, more efficient, more effective, no waste. Um, and so there's a lot of that in business school and that is completely directly applicable to what we do. I mean, our business is nothing if not a production line and um, you can have all the great design ideas and taste in the world, but if you cannot get it installed on time and on budget, then you're not going to have a very long career. Absolutely true. How do you communicate that, that sense of um, working smarter, not harder and being very efficient to your team? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, hopefully I lead by example. Um, you know, they all see where my priorities are. I work extremely hard, but, um, you know, I'm out of here all the time for any number of children's sporting events and things like that. Um, I, I don't like meetings. I don't do a lot of meetings. Um, you know, the meetings that we do internally are pretty brief and there's a lot of kind of one-on-one, you know, collaborative meetings. I'm also very fortunate. I have an amazing team, but I just have to shout out to the person who's been with me the longest. She's been with me, I don't know, 11 years, but Arwen, who's my right-hand person is, you know, we are cut from the same cloth in terms of how we run things, how we see the world. You know, she's got a funny saying, we, we have sort of an irreverent work environment here and she'll say fewer words, more information. Like that's what she wants. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I, I don't know that I could say that without sounding a little bit bitchy to my um, team, but sometimes that's exactly what's going through my mind. I'm just right. like, can we get to the point, please? Totally. <laughs> no, we, uh, we, um, you have to have some thick skin around here. I mean, we, we have a lot of fun and we're very, um, there's no formality here. I mean, you know, I swear like a truck driver, um, everybody's nervous about me being on a podcast or a webinar because they're wondering <laughs> how many times you're going to have to bleep me out, but I've been pretty good so far. I'm You've been good. I just had um, Alexa Hampton the other day oh, and she dropped a few F-bombs. So um, you're, you'll be in good company if you do. <laughs> Alexa went to Brown. Uh, it was in my class at Brown. Oh, wow. I didn't mm-hmm. realize. Well, I knew she went to Brown, but I didn't realize you guys had been, uh, been there at the same time. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, Okay, fast forward a little bit. You you dipped your toe and um, was was your merchandising career before or after you went to business school? It was. It's hard to keep track okay. because I literally had. I mean, people say, "Oh, I changed jobs five times." I'm like, I didn't just change jobs ten times. I changed industries and careers, and you know, I did internet consulting. I did startups. I did headhunting. I did, you know, all sorts of things. Um, on this quest, you know, to find my calling supposedly, but right out of, um, well, I won't even go through my whole track right out of business school, but it was pretty quick. And I, um, landed at the gap basically because I had this sort of aha moment, like, okay, you're, you know, this is going to be the perfect melding of left brain, right brain, um, you know, retail merchandising. And it's funny because I listened to your podcast with Mark, who's so um, great the other day. And I know, mm-hmm. you know, it did wonders for him and his training. But for me, actually, it it was not a great fit, but I am grateful for it because it sort of was the final straw for me saying there is no 
you know, corporate solution to my situation. But, you know, it was a big corporation. I, I didn't like that. And I think um, it wasn't nearly as creative. My job wasn't. I was in retail merchandising. So my job wasn't nearly as creative as I wanted to be. But I'm grateful because I think I had had so many false starts and I had high hopes that this was going to be sort of the solution. And when it wasn't, I sort of was ready to just throw up my hands and say, fine, I'm just going to start my own thing, even though, you know, it made no logical sense and I had no plan and I had no no money to speak (laughs) of or anything like that. So. So then how, how did you finally arrive at a design career? So um, there was another, um, I had a friend, a man who was actually, I think, in Mark's division in, in visual um, at Banana Republic. And he and I would go to lunch. And this was back before Instagram and everything else. So I had started to kind of, you know, get more and more into home stuff the older I got um, and, you know, had all the magazines and everything else. So the two of us would have lunch together and we would do our rip and reads, you know, where you pull all your tear sheets, not your tear sheets, but your I used to take a scalpel. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd met my husband by then, which is why I had a scalpel. But <laughs> um, I think I used to take a scalpel and, um, you know, take out pictures from magazines of all my favorite living rooms and all my favorite bedrooms. And we'd go to lunch and sort of compare and contrast and just kind of have fun. And um, he was thinking about leaving around the same time. And, um, you know, I thought, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know enough about this. And I, San Francisco is such a big city, you know, I'd only known designers from Charleston, like my mom, but a friend of mine took me to the designer showcase here. And I was struck by how unlike, how little it looked like anything that I loved and that I was familiar with from back home, you know, design has changed a lot. And it's not to say that it was poorly executed, but at the time, and this is 17, 18 years ago, Everything was neutral and there were, you know, maybe Asian antiques, but no English antiques. And I just thought like, huh, you know, if I had a big house in San Francisco and I was coming here to hire a designer, I don't see anyone that would provide the look that I would want. So it sort of gave me the confidence to say, you know, there's a, there's a need. I can't, I'm not going to do a business plan and run the numbers, but I can just see it, that there's a need for a, a different look. Um, or a look that's, you know, more kind of East Coast meets California. Um, and, you know, I, I just decided to go for it. And I came out of the gap with a couple of small clients, you know, people who I think, you know, back then, I don't think the field was as saturated. And I think they thought, look, if you can string a sentence together and not drool on yourself and you look halfway decent, <laughs> then great, you can be my designer. Uh, the stakes have gotten a lot higher now to start, but I was just lucky that, you know, I, I was able to do that. One thing led to another. That's incredible. And I love that you have the confidence, the confidence within yourself and, and the ability to recognize a potential gap in the market, if you will, um, to be able to offer something different to San Francisco. And obviously it's worked out for you rather nicely. Well, thank you. (laughs) What advice would you give to someone looking to make a career change and start their own design firm? What should someone know before taking that leap? Well, I think, uh, well, first of all, I'm a big fan, clearly, if it hasn't come through yet, but I am a big fan of, you know, following your passion and following your dreams. 
And, um, and I do think that that's the way that you will ultimately be the most successful. Um, and trying to get rid of like the shoulds in life, you know, I should do mm-hmm. this. Um, I, obviously there's practical considerations and you, you know, you have to be able to put food on the table and other things, but so I encourage people if that's what they want to do to make that leap. Um, I think it cannot be underestimated how much of a business design is, um, you know, so just obviously having, you know, taste and, and being able to, you know, put it all together is extremely important, but it, this job is like 75%, you know, um, grit and execution and, um, and operations and money management. And so, you know, make sure that you enjoy that side or you, you know, know somebody who you can partner with or know the right person to hire and do that, you know, day one. Uh, Because it just, it is so important, not only because, you know, this business is largely word of mouth and you're only as good as your last project. And I don't care how pretty somebody's house is, if you've, you know, blown their budget or, you know, not executed correctly, they're not going to be happy with you. And it only takes a couple of those to go around to where you're not going to have a lot of new business coming in. Um, And also, you know, you can, you can definitely lose money. There's an enormous amount of financial exposure in this business. You know, we're carrying inventory for people. Um, And so I just recommend that you really get your ducks in a row in terms of, you know, making sure you have your insurance set up and your business license set up and you understand what software to use and you get on a software program right away and um, know where your weaknesses are and find somebody who can help you with those. I 100% agree with all of that. I mean, so much of it, as you said, is operations and having tried and true procedures in place so that you can get to the finish line with as few mistakes as possible and to make sure that you are abiding by the timeline and the budget that you promised your client. Yep. Um, and there's so many different factors, many of which are out of our control exactly. that can happen from point A to point B. Yeah. And so having those procedures in place is such a such a peace of mind factor because when, once you figure it out and you won't know from the beginning and, you know, I, I didn't work for anyone else. And if I had known in my early twenties, when I was still in college, what I would eventually be doing with my life, I, I would have loved that opportunity. I would have loved to have changed my major and gone to design school and then trained under someone else Mm -hmm. for several years because as you figure it out if you don't have anybody sort of guiding you in the right direction or giving you the framework of how to run a a successful design operation there are so many mistakes that you will make I mean it is literally blood sweat and tears to get a business up and running and um, you know to keep everything moving the way that it should if if you don't have that framework in place absolutely And you're going to make mistakes anyway. I mean, I tell my office, you know, I don't mind mistakes. What I mind is if we ever make the same mistake twice. (laughs) Exactly. So we try not to do that. Exactly. Well, tell me a little bit about your team and your process as you work with clients. Where do you guys typically like like to start your projects? Um, What is the impetus for you? And then what is sort of the process of how you like to work with your clients? Sure. So, um, you know, the first step, obviously, is just getting to know the people, you know, in an interview or phone conversation, an in-person meeting, understanding, 
you know, really who they are as people, as a family, how they want to, you know, what they want the ethos of their house to be. And then, uh, you know, brass tacks also of we need it to be dog friendly or we need it to be kid friendly or we need to be able to host however many people, you know, so sort of a big picture, high level, who are you and, and how do you want to live? But then before we do much creative, it might, because of my background and also um, the way that my team works, we go right into floor plans. And the reason that we do that is that I always start with a budget. Um, and I, I don't care if your budget, how big your, well, I do care how big your budget is, but the reason that we always start with the floor plans is that they don't lie. You know, people can say, people can throw out numbers, oh, this room might cost X amount, or, you know, this house might cost so-and-so, but you really don't know until you do a floor plan. And, you know, even in a, um, obviously you won't necessarily stick to that exact floor plan and things will be changed in and changed out. But once you do a floor plan, you really, we can get really to the dollar down to how much overall it's going to cost. One room might come in a little bit less. One other room might come in more. We might swap out two chairs for a sofa, you know, but we've been doing this long enough and we have enough um, history in our system and, um, you know, Arwen's got enough financial chops to know exactly, you know, how much the pillows are going to cost in the house. So we always start with that because first, I, I just like that to be very transparent and I like to hit that sort of um, head on right away. And really it does inform so much of the design because how can I possibly know how I'm going to design if I'm going to do Degourney wallpaper versus paint? I mean, that's a swing factor of, you know, $25,000 easily. Easily. So what's the point of designing with Degourney if that's not really in the budget? Or I also like to help people walk through their trade-offs because even though I'm fortunate, I work with extremely wealthy people, you know, most people do do have a number, you know, my, I always say my clients didn't get to where they are by being dumb about money. They're all extremely mm -hmm. smart about money. And so they want, want to approach this the same way. So, you know, yes, while they might be able to afford to Gournay, maybe they would instead rather have, you know, um, an, a workout room or something else. But how are you possibly going to make those decisions in a vacuum before you've seen it all laid out in front of you in floor plan and in financial terms? So that's where we start the project. That's so smart. And exactly for the reasons you you outlined, you know, you can't go down the rabbit hole of this vision if you don't know that the numbers can support it. Right. And then we do, I mean, you know, not to sound like a total operations machine. I mean, we obviously get into all the creative fun stuff. As soon as we do that, you know, and we can get to that pretty fast based on, you know, I have um, two people who do CAD here and, you know, I do the numbers with Arwen. And so we can get to that very fast. And then we can get into, um, you know, the fun of designing. And we typically start with a lot of images. You know, um, I actually manage a lot of my business on Pinterest with like private Pinterest boards between clients. And mm -hmm. the old adage, like a picture's, you know, worth a thousand words. And I think it goes back to my tear sheet days from the gap, <laughs> you know, my, my lookbook days, but, um, you know, talking through images with people about what resonates and what doesn't and really drilling down specifically um, can tell me a lot about people um, and what they're ultimately going to like. Um, and then we start with the design process and we typically 
you know, a lot of, most of our projects are pretty big and pretty extensive. And, um, but we sort of start in like bite-sized chunks. So maybe I'll start with like three rooms at a time and I'll have two different schemes for each room. And, um, and we'll start there and then kind of flow through the house from that. I love that. I think that's great because it gives you um, something to go back to in terms of what that initial jumping off point is for the house and also allows the client to get in on the process early enough Mm -hmm. where, you know, you can correct course if you need to, if something's not working out or they decide that they want to switch gears and go in a different direction or whatever it may be. Exactly. And luckily, I mean, what happens more often than not is they, I mean, we're very lucky if we've done our work up front and had enough, you know, back and forth and communication. A lot of times what they do is they end up picking even one of the extra schemes for another room in the house. <laughs> They'll say like, mm-hmm. oh, I really like, you know, both of those bedrooms that you just showed me. Can one be the master and one be the guest or, you know, so that's good. That's so great. Do you, would you say that you have any indispensable design elements, things that you go back to again and again in your work? Um, I don't like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that I have repeated myself. I don't like to repeat myself. I mean, part of it is that I get bored easily and want to move on. So I try mm-hmm. not, you know, it's not, I don't have any one fabric or anything like that. I would say I definitely um, always have antiques are one of a kinds and we buy very little furniture from um sort of traditional design showrooms we buy a lot of antiques or one of kinds we make a lot of custom furniture um so i would say you know antique one of a kinds and then i because yeah i think i left this one out of my long career um tirade but i also worked in um, art galleries and modern art galleries at, at when i was at brown and so I, I really do love art and obviously spend a lot of time thinking about it. So I advise clients a lot on art and um, everywhere from, you know, just fun stuff that's found on Etsy to um, sometimes I, I bring in a consultant who used to run Sotheby's and, you know, will bid on things at auction. So I would say original art is also something that is indispensable to me. Absolutely. And both of those things, I think both categories between antiques and art are such huge, huge, important elements in design in terms of giving a space personality and life and a sense of history. Um, But they aren't always things that you can plan for necessarily. Sure, you can say, I want this style mirror or commode or whatever it may be, but sometimes you just you find the right thing so much later than you imagined or very early on in the process before you have a spot for it. And I think those are the elements that really make an interior super magical and personal. I do too. I do too. Would you say your love of antiques comes from growing up in Charleston? Probably. I mean, yes, I would. I mean, my, my, you know, I grew up in a uh, 18th century home and, um, and because my mom was a designer, you know, I was, tagged along with her whether I liked it or not to antique stores ever since I was little you know or Scott's flea market in Atlanta and it's funny I mean it is it is by far my favorite thing to do and my favorite thing in this um, business is the hunt you know I love I love to go to flea markets I've gotten up and gone to Alameda Mm -hmm. here at five in the morning you know I've been to uh, Round Top I just I love that and I love the whole culture above it um you know, at the shows as well. 
But no, I think, um, you know, everyone in Charleston, whether they were fine things or not, you know, depending on people's socioeconomic status, everybody had, um, had heirlooms and, um, and things from their past that they were living with. And, um, and it just made everybody's house feel so unique and special to them. Absolutely. How do you think that the design sensibility in Northern California differs from back in Charleston? I mean, obviously there's some very big differences in terms of architecture and and age. Obviously, Northern California isn't nearly as old as Charleston, but what are some of the sort of intangibles that you think are different about the way that people like to live in those two places? Sure. Um, Well, I'll say this. I do think that... um, in my time in design and my time in San Francisco, I mean, I first moved to San Francisco in 1993. Um, I think that um, the design sensibility here has evolved a lot. It might just be a self-selection process where I'm hanging out with more like-minded design people. So maybe I'm just, my, my data set is skewed, but um, I do think that there is much more of an East Coast influence and sort of even stores that I've seen come up and things like that since when I first started. But um in general, I would say, you know, um, in Californians, San Franciscans are, um, you know, sort of don't like a lot of stuff, I would say. They don't, they're not as into the layered feeling and, you know, what you could call a cluttered feeling that I think maybe Southerners and certainly Charlestonians are more comfortable with, you know, um, easy on the tchotchkes and the, the, you know, candlesticks and all that kind of stuff. So I think that, I think um, there is less of an appreciation for sort of imperfect things like antiques um, in out here. And I, I, I think, you know, I have to give my clients, I give them the patina speech all the time, um, which is sort of a running joke in this office, but because um, patina means it got messed up, but um but I think that that's important. And I try to, you know, tell my clients that like, that's sort of the beauty of life also is that everything doesn't have to be perfect. And antiques are a wonderful reminder of that. You know, my dining room table that I have in my house here, I got because it, our chandelier at home fell on it when workers were working upstairs. And so it's got huge divots in it and um, it's fine. You know, I mean, it's still, I love it. I love the story of the chandelier falling and, you know, um, so I think that that is something that Californians are less comfortable with, but luckily my clients are, are open to my opinions on that. And I sort of am able to bring them along a little bit. Is the majority of your work still in the San Francisco area or do you find that you travel a lot for work? I've been traveling a lot. Um, the last year I was in, um, Montecito, Dallas, Montana, um, and then wine country. So, um, but most of them originated as clients here, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's fun to get to do different, you know, different environments. I love doing second homes. They have a, you know, a different level of freedom and looseness to them, um, that are a lot of fun. For sure. It's so nice to just get outside of your own, four walls, if you will, your usual day to day, the same scenery, the same sort of um, environment and work elsewhere. 
because people just like you said there's a different vibe there's a different sense of place from one location to the next so I think as a designer being able to do that to have those opportunities makes us stronger I agree and it's also I mean it's wonderful for sourcing for projects I mean I just installed this home in Montana and I found some of my favorite these huge wooden carved deer heads in Dallas you know when I was there working for my other project so um, a lot of good cross-fertilization there for projects as well that's so great where do you typically turn for inspiration, Palmer? Well, um, this one is, I, I'm probably a little bit um, different, or this might sound crazy, but I, I really am not, I mean, yes, I, I look at Instagram and I read magazines and I have books from all the great designers and everything else, but I really, um, I'm a huge sports fan. In particular, I'm a massive football fan, Baltimore Ravens football fan. And I really am more motivated by sort of excellence across all sorts of levels of, you know, disciplines. And one of the reasons I think I like football and particularly my favorite position as a wide receiver is this sort of, you know, leave it all on the field mentality and, um, you know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off after, you know, having a bad play or something like that. And so, Things like that really inspire me. I know that that's silly, but, um, but you know, all the design stuff is great. But I try not to look too specifically at a ton of design also because I feel like, you know, I don't want to either consciously or unconsciously copy people. I mean, of course, we're all, there is no original idea. Everybody is constantly sourcing from other people and getting great ideas. But I really would, you know, I would rather try to put blinders on a little bit there and see what I can generate between my own, you know, two ears. Um, so yeah, that's my, (laughs) that's where I get my inspiration from. Well, I think that's important to remember because like you said, whether consciously or unconsciously, all of that outside inspiration, all of the things that we expose ourselves to, they do start to creep Mm -hmm. in. And I was just having this conversation with um, with Young Ha, as a matter of fact, when we recorded our episode about how when you do a show house, when you design a room for a show house, it can be a little bit of a challenge because there is no client. Mm-hmm. There is no set of parameters, if you will, other than a timeline. And it's basically just you and your creativity and a direct representation of what your true style yeah. is without those outside influences. And I was saying to her how, you know, on a few occasions where I've had the opportunity to do show houses, I really have to sit with my myself and my own creativity for a little bit and really think about, you know, okay, if I drown out all of these other things that I've seen or that I love, what is a true, um, a true interpretation of what I love at my core without any of those influences. And I do think if, you know, you, you are constantly on social media or constantly with your nose in a book or in a magazine, some of those things start to creep in and it's certainly um, a positive thing. I mean, I think we can learn from a lot of other things that are going on in the world and resources and um, ways of, 
executing things, but at the same time, it, it's sort of a slippery slope. Yeah. You have to be careful about how much you take in and, you know, wh- what the difference between inspiration and then potentially sort of crossing over into a more dangerous territory where you're diluting your own sense of self and own sense of style and adopting someone else's. I, I totally agree. But I love the football reference too, because I feel that way too, not necessarily about football per se, but um, just the idea of seeing someone regardless of what the profession is and I've said this to my husband before whether it's Bruno Mars Mm -hmm. performing at the halftime show at the Super Bowl and just leaving it all out there and you can tell not only is he amazing at what he does as an entertainer but you can tell he's having so much fun doing it or visiting a winery like a boutique little winery somewhere in the Napa Valley and these people pour all of this passion literally (laughs) into you know the product that they are bottling and selling whatever the the discipline might be just the idea of someone doing what they do with so much heart and passion and joy I think that's so I infectious. I, I just, it makes me happy to see other people succeeding and loving what they do. Same. Yeah, no, exactly. So whether a wide receiver <laughs> or an entertainer, yeah, so the my same other policy applies. Just delay is one of my <laughs> other ones that I just love. Oh, yes. I haven't been to Cirque du Soleil in a while, but I mean, just the, the athleticism yeah. and artistry yeah. is incredible. And the precision. I mean, the operations of, Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. is not to be underestimated. Well, that's true. I've never really given that too much thought, but just to, to be able to execute mm-hmm. um, an operation at that level of that caliber, and it's a yes. road show. So they're moving from place to place and they're having to do it again. It's inc- it amazing. That's amazing. So what is like, tell us, I, I feel like there's so much that we can glean from you and learn from you in terms of your operations, because as we're talking more, I'm realizing like you really love the idea of the precision and execution and all of that. What are you most proud of? Is there um, a policy or procedure or process or whatever it may be that you've, you've implemented in your firm or in your work that you are super proud of that you feel like really works for you? Well, uh, that'll be a two-part answer. So really, honestly, when you started to say, what are you most proud of? Honestly, the thing I'm most proud of as an employer is that um, my retention and having employees who've stayed with me for a long time and who, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, seem happy to be here and who are, you know, this, this, firm has enabled them to, you know, support their families and, and live, you know, a life that they want. So honestly, that is what I am most proud of. But I would say in terms of what we do, I mean, I think our budgeting process is pretty, pretty good. Um, Again, for whatever reason, all of my clients have been in finance, and they're very successful in finance. And I'm very proud that you know, I can go, um, that I can give this to them, that I can, you know, basically take all of the financial worry off the table for them because I'm able to so accurately, you know, explain to them what they need to spend for starters and then, um, execute on that and, you know, knock on wood. We really have never gone over budget. Um, and 
you know, the only way that we would go over budget is if we, you know, said, if the client said, I really want this piece and we say, okay, well, that's going to put you over budget. I mean, a lot of times we can then kind of rework things to, to accept that. But at the end of my projects, you know, I either give a, a, re, a check back for the balance that we have on. Um, so I am, or, or, you know, or even Steven, but I am, I'm, I think that's what I'm probably most proud of. That's huge. And the, the employee retention too, I, you know, a lot of times for whatever reason, people don't stick around that long or it doesn't work out. So to, to be able to say that your team has been with you for such a long haul is an amazing, amazing achievement. Oh, thank you. That, they're amazing people. They and I'm sure patience, a testament. So I don't know what. Well, I'm sure it's a testament to the kind of the kind of boss that you are and the way that you treat them and the sort of sense of autonomy and growth and um, inclusion that they must feel in your office. Well, you'll, you'll have to interview them to, <laughs> to hear if any of that. Material, but <laughs> I think, you know, um, I mean, that some of that may be true and some of that may not be true. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think people just want people want to be treated obviously fairly and you know I think we try here it's it's all women uh for what it's worth and you know everybody has families in some way shape or form and I just try to you know we try to keep our priorities straight this business is very important we do serious business there's a lot of money at stake but at the end of the day you know people's health and their family the health of the family is number one priority. And um, I think you just have to keep your priorities straight and um, your employees will appreciate that. Indeed. So aside from being a big football fan, (laughs) is there anything else people might be surprised to learn about you? Oh, gosh. Um, Let's see. Well, maybe I love gospel music. And, um, you know, my husband, I'm married uh, to a Jewish man who's not religious at all. We are not, um, you know, we are not a very traditional family. We've got, he's surrounded by three very outspoken liberal women. Uh, God help him. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not very traditional in a lot of senses, but I have always loved um, huge gospel choirs. And it's actually really quite sweet because my husband, who is not religious, like I said, um, will always sort of, if there's ever a gospel event anywhere, he'll make sure and get us tickets and and go. And my children will sort of cringe, you know, they'll go and they'll sort of half cringe, half, I think, maybe be a little bit proud of me because I'm always the first one up on my feet, you know, dancing and singing you know in a huge auditorium and um so that might be a surprise I guess that's yeah. fun and I listen to it constantly <laughs> I mean if I listen to it if I work out or you know when I'm designing or whatever so you have to be comfortable with some gospel music around here yes well um if you could go back in time Palmer what advice would you give to your younger self you know I think I would tell myself not to sweat it so much. I, um, you know, that one's a hard one because I think you end up where you are based on a chain of all of your actions and interactions and every thought and deed that you've ever had. So if you're happy where you are, it's hard to go back and say you'd change anything. Um, And possibly, you know, I was able to 
get where I am because I did sweat it so much. But, you know, I, I wish that I had maybe enjoyed a little bit more of the ride and just known that, you know, these things that go wrong in our business, um, really virtually all of them can be fixed. <laughs> you know, there's not, uh, we're not, um, you know, neurosurgeons here. It's very serious and it's a lot of money, but, you know, no one's really died so far from a designing accident. So, you know, I wish that I could have just seen that and maybe taken it a little bit, you know, more lightly. Yeah, it's, it's important to remember. I say that to my, to my um, team sometimes too, like, yes, this is, it's serious Mm -hmm. business. It's a serious operation that we're running and these are people's homes. That's something very sacred. And the relationship that we have with our clients is so important in that, you know, there's such a huge level of implied trust from the fact that you're in their homes, designing their homes around their families and children and pets. And, you know, there's a financial element involved. All of that requires a great deal of trust, but again, it also requires perspective because if something gets backordered or the wrong thing is shipped, sure, it's annoying, it's an inconvenience, but it's not the end of the world. No one's life is at stake. You know, it's not organ transplantation. We didn't send the wrong (laughs) organ. Um, So (laughs) we'll figure it out. And so that that level of of perspective, I think, is important to maintain. And sometimes it's harder. Like, I think we're pretty good about it in our office. And most of our clients are really wonderful and easygoing and understanding. But every now and then, you know, there's it's their it's their home. And so people it's serious to them. But sometimes the reaction doesn't necessarily merit the situation. And you have to just go back and think about the fact that at the end of the day, it's going to be okay. And we'll get it all resolved. Um, but hopefully, I mean, my hope is that the situation we're currently in Mm -hmm. together with the coronavirus pandemic will, if nothing else, offer perspective to, um, everyone who has been, you know, in the midst of all of this. And we're all sort of in a similar place, which very rarely can you say that we're all kind of in the same boat as a society. Um, but what has this experience taught you? Have you found a silver lining? I have. I mean, I found a lot of silver linings and I, you know, to take nothing away from the unbelievable suffering that's going on out there, you know, whether it's financial or emotional or physical and loss of loved ones. But, you know, for me, I I say this is sort of my Ariana Huffington thrive moment. I don't know if you read her book or if you're familiar with uh, her story. Um, Sure. But for those of you, if you haven't, she, you know, Ariana Huffington is obviously a very famous um, journalist and, um, and she and author and influencer. And, but anyway, she had this moment where she fell and hit her head on the side of her desk and sort of woke up in a pile of blood, you know, and, and it was because she was exhausted and overrun and everything else. And that was sort of her aha, you know, lightning bolt moment where she went and really changed her life. And, Um, made some extreme adjustments to how she lived and what her definition of success was. And, and so, I mean, I think that this is this moment, this pandemic that we're in is presenting that to a lot of us, you know, sort of why are we doing the things that we do? Why do we go as fast as we go? What is truly um, adding to our lives versus just taking up space in our lives? And 
um, ultimately distracting from it. And I was sort of already on that path, you know, having coming off of a couple of just crazy years of, you know, travel and, and work. And it's not that I am going to stop working. I'm not, I, I love my job. And, you know, if anything, this teaches me how much I miss, you know, the environment with my colleagues and things, but, um, but it's, I, I was already taking a hard look at why I do what I do. And, um, and this is really, put a magnifying glass on that. And um, so I think that, you know, my family at least will be making some changes probably and just the way that we live week to week. And, um, and it, you know, along those lines, silver linings, you know, I've been able to spend so much time with my kids and my husband. Um, I mean, we literally went through a couple of months where we were kind of high-fiving each other on the way out the door. One of us rolling in with a suitcase and one of us rolling out. Um, so, you know, I've really enjoyed that. I mean, my kids will cringe at this. I'm not a cook, but like I've been cooking and um, just mm -hmm. sort of enjoying the simpler, slower things in life, which is nice. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think a lot of people will reassess what matters most and how they're spending their time. And I do think a lot of us will be making changes moving forward. I hope so. It's you know too bad that um, it took something like this for a lot of us to do that, to do that introspection and, and figuring out what matters. Unfortunately, it's, it's come at the cost of a lot of people's lives and livelihoods, but something good has to come out of it. And I think if, if we don't allow something good to come out of this, then, you know, all of that is in vain. Agreed. Well, on a lighter <laughs> note, what is currently giving you hope? Palmer, in the world of design or otherwise? I mean, I think I, this period is as hard as it is. It feels incredibly hopeful to me. I mean, I've been so moved by so many things during, um, during these, what, five weeks we're going on, six weeks. Um, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, right when this started, the world was feeling incredibly um, partisan um, and sort of confrontational and overly selfish. And I've just been amazed at how adaptable and resilient people are. I mean, from, you know, parents uh, on different coasts to, you know, um, colleagues and everything else. I mean, just the, the way that people are really coming together and sacrificing for a greater good. I mean, of course, there are exceptions, and those are always going to be disappointing. But but that's been really um, lovely to see. And, um, and I think it was time to see that. <laughs> I think it couldn't have come at a better time to see that. Um, I think also like just amazed, I'm just amazed at like the grit and the ingenuity of people and their desire to, you know, at least survive or thrive during this period. I mean, whether it's, you know, I went to go pick up a pizza the other day from this place we used to take the kids when they were little and, the whole place was founded on packing all these kids in there and kids throwing pizza dough around and, you know, every, you know, just a classic sort of not a great restaurant. And they had the most professional operations set up. I could not even believe it. I mean, from the second you called to how they did the credit card to how they had like reorganized their entire place so that all their employees could stand six feet apart and everything else. It was just it was amazing. And this was weeks ago. So this was like week one of the pandemic. So I'm just always so impressed with um, how adaptable and resilient people That's are. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to be resilient and, um, and be able to adapt to what's going on. Cause otherwise, if you're just sitting bemoaning the changes, you're, you'll, Yes. Go nuts. I mean, you'll drive yourself insane. And, you know, in order to survive, and that's not to, that's not to be dismissive of the real challenges that people are facing. And obviously, a lot of um, the future of a lot of businesses is at stake right now. I think we're lucky in, in what we do as interior designers and dealing with a demographic that, you know, will we'll be fine for the most part, sure, there will be changes that need to be made. And I worry about our workrooms and some of the people that that we work with that depend upon the rest of us, um, generally speaking, like, we'll be fine. That's not to say that um, we are glazing over that. But yeah, I mean, you have to like you, it's the same sort of premise as if if you don't laugh, you'll just cry because it is such a scary time. And I think finding a way to, to keep looking forward and to remain positive and, and finding ways of adapting and, and changing and pivoting where you need to in order to survive, to have that fighter mentality, I think is super yeah. important. Agreed. And I mean, you just touched on it too, but the, the humor is also just amazing. I mean, the memes going around and I mean, I, I probably, <laughs> I, I certainly haven't cried this much um, in a five week period and I don't even know ever. But I also haven't laughed this much and laughed this hard. I mean, people are funny and um, they can get themselves out of a lot of things by keeping a sense of humor and remembering to laugh. I mean, again, not to belittle anything of the real horrible challenges where there's nothing funny about it. But um, for the rest of us trying to slog through day after day, um, keeping a sense of humor is, um, is key such an important reminder. Well, thank you so much, Palmer, for making us laugh today and for sharing so much wonderful insight, such great advice. And um, it was also wonderful to hear more about your story. So yeah, thank, thank you, you for so joining for us. Having me. Of course. Well, be well. I hope you to too. see Take you care. soon. Bye. Okay. Bye, Palmer. That was interior designer Palmer Weiss. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to visit us online at thestylefilespodcast.com where you can find more episodes featuring inspiring conversations with creatives. You can listen directly on our website or subscribe via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying The Style Files, please consider leaving us a positive rating or review. It will only take a few seconds of your time and will make a huge difference for us. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time time.